Welcome to uh, this Agile Gorilla Collective part two. We're going to talk about a uh, very interesting uh, separation, uh, which is hitting the headlines in all sorts of good and bad ways um, today. Uh, it'll be a half an hour pod. Uh, the four that you'll have on the call are four different voices. David Boyd, um, X, one of the big four, um, done loads and loads of post-merger integration, probably, you know, I think to, collectively across all four of us, we've got about 100 years of experience, which certainly makes me feel quite old. Uh, we've got Abby Pandey, who comes more out of the sort of primary corporate finance marketplace, but has got very interesting insight into the uh, into the post-merger integration world. And certainly I've been boring him to tears about that for quite a long time. And then we've got Paul Siegenthaler, um, who uh, is our, our European representative, very pleased about that. Again, loads and loads of experience in the post-merger integration world um, in the drinks industry and all sorts of other sectors. Uh, speaks a gazillion European languages, which I'm deeply jealous of. Uh, and myself, Bender Haldebang. Um, so yeah, so we're part of this Agile Gorilla Collective. And the conversation we're gonna have today is about uh, the Ernst & Young separation, which, uh, if I'm not wrong, is probably one of the largest consulting potential listings that's ever been out there. Um, and it's a very significant uh, step in the in the world of the big four. Lots of discussions have been had like this before, but no one's really taken it to this level. Uh, and we're going to talk about um, our views on that and where it's going and what the potential pitfalls might be from all sorts of aspects. Uh, so this is not going to be a beautifully curated conversation. It's going to be lots and lots of voices, hopefully. Um, so why don't we start, and I'm not going to chair this, I promise you, which is good. Um, why don't we start with uh, some first impressions? Maybe that's a good place to go. Um, and I'm going to start with Paul first. Paul, what was your first impression when you heard about this deal? What did you think? My first impression was that it was led, the whole thinking was led by the people who are going to cash in all the money, i.e. the consultants and to some extent the, the auditors. And you wonder, you know, what's in it for the clients? That's my first thought. What came right after that is that these companies have gone through big, you know, um, deep thinking in, in understanding, in, in explaining in the beginning many years ago why they should merge and become a consolidated company that offers auditing and consulting services. And so now they're trying to prove the contrary. And I'm not quite sure, you know, has the, has the world changed to that extent that what was necessary 15, 20 years ago is now completely reversed and they should all break up? I think we'll, we can have a conversation about the regulatory environment in a minute because I think that that probably would be a factor that they would point to. Abby, what about you? What are your first impressions when you when you saw this? Well, I, I agree with Paul that I don't think it was done in service of clients. Although that's the the public narrative has to be satisfying regulators and the conflicts of interest and things like that. Although I, I, I do wonder. Well, I, I generally think that split outs and the evidence in many cases supports this spin-offs generally tend to be shareholder friendly or value friendly because people get to focus on what they do well which is sort of the contrary to why mergers work right which is you're combining and so i'm skeptical as paul is around the truthfulness or the uh, comprehensiveness of the regulatory answer right their, re their rationale is that it's regulatory I think it's regulatory in a 20% case, and then the other 80% is basically wealth creation. And uh, it would be interesting to explore where and how, but yeah, I'm also a little bit skeptical that they're doing this just purely for, they're certainly not doing it to serve clients. David Boyd? 
For me, it took me back about 20 years. So I joined PwC back in 2005, which is about three years after uh, they'd sold uh, their consulting arm. You remember the famous rebranding to Monday before IBM bought it. And for me, that was just a fantastic idea. You know, naturally accounting firms generate consulting business, build one up, sell it off. What I don't understand is why it's taken 20 years to somebody to do the same thing again. Because if I was PwC or Ernst or Deloitte, I'd do this every 10, 15 years, just as a natural way of creating a business and getting some value from it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I, I think let's just talk a bit about the regulatory side. I, you know, I, I get your scepticism, uh, Abby and Paul, on on that piece. This What we're talking about is this concept of Channel 1, Channel 1A, um, where uh, the the regulatory re- regime is becoming even tighter. Every, every year it gets tighter and tighter to service clients that are audit clients, clients that might potentially be audit clients. So um, obviously with four major firms out around the world, uh, anytime a new bank or a new insurance company of any size and scale comes up for grabs, the exiting firm and the two that are potentially in in uh, in competition for it are put on a list which effectively stops them from competing for any consulting work up to a year before the actual audit takes place. And then even when you've had when you come off the audit, you've got another um, I think it's probably another year before you can actually start to compete for that work. And um, now in the past, I think. There were the regulations were a bit more manageable in terms of what you can could couldn't do in that space. It's become really really hard uh, to do anything outside of the audit uh, environment. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember spending uh, a number of uh, you know months of my life uh, trying to squeeze a proposal letter through that fat, that fitted nicely into what was possible or not possible in the context of what the consulting arrangement was going to be. But uh, it is it is really really hard to do that these days. So I think that's that's the that's the the focus of it. EY is a strong audit firm. It's not it's not one of the smaller ones in terms of the uh, the other two. Uh, the, there are two that are have less of an audit presence in certain marketplaces, and so they they naturally compete. Deloitte would be one. They naturally compete more effectively in the consulting space, whereas EY and, and PwC have got very strong audit practices in their home markets and also in the US. Um, and so they really can't go for that work. Um, so I think that, so that's the logic behind it. I do. I think you're right, Abby. I think this question about the payday, right, which is the sort of Goldman Sachs moment, if you like, for, for partners across the two, moment, the two businesses uh, is clearly a motivator. And I was going to ask you about valuation, uh, I don't know if you saw if you saw the evaluation they were putting on it. I I haven't. I know uh, you know they had forty billion of revenue overall last year, of which fourteen or thirteen and a half was was audit. And and so my understanding, and this is the question, because you described what you just described when when you described it, you said it was sort of regulatory because the regulators have put constraints on how how much auditors can compete for business if they have conflicts. When I heard that, I wasn't hearing regulation. That same, I was hearing compensation because what it is, is it is the conflicts are impairing either the audit partners or the consulting partners' compensation or ability to get new business, right? And the regulators aren't expressing any concerns about this because they've put guardrails saying you can only do so much if you're already auditing or you can only get back in. You're right. And so to some extent, the regulators are just watching it happen at some level. They're not pushing for this change in the same way, say, an antitrust 
regulator might push for a split. Here, the split is occurring because sitting around the table, the audit partner is saying that the presence of the consulting team at this client is impairing my ability to get back in as an auditor. And the consulting partner, I suspect, and I don't know to what extent this is the case, is complaining that the fact that the audit partner is auditing a firm is preventing them from getting more business. And so the point of being together, which is you share the relationship and correct, strength, correct, is not correct. working. So that is it. That's in a exactly. weird sense. So it's, a growth, are, it's more of a challenge around growth as opposed to, you know, the, yeah, the regulatory. It, I think that, okay. that's yeah. how when even yeah. the, the fact pattern that you laid out seems to yeah. suggest. Okay. And, Abbe, just building on that, it, it, what was quite interesting for me is you're talking about the relationship between the two partners, consulting and audit. I wonder if part of it is just the internal structures and relationships between the two teams, because there's a certain world where you say, actually, those relationships are going really well, you're getting on. And otherwise, you know, whether it's a conglomerate, you know, in advertising, media, pharmaceuticals, you get divisions that are fighting each other. And perhaps it's not just breakdown in compensation goals, but just a breakdown in the relationship. I think, David, you're right. I don't think it's just compensation. I think it is, you know, one thing I can imagine is that somebody owns any given relationship. Like, so the initial partner might be the audit partner who then brings in the consulting team. And then over time, the relationship might shift and that cause friction. I think that, but you're right. It is sort of the, the, the interactions between them, whether they're purely compensation related or relationship, client relationship management related or others. Uh, in terms of, I suspect, this what, what's causing this fracture. Paul, I was going to ask you about that in a minute, but just one other little factor on that, which I think, we, which is always an interesting thing, which is that we always think about these things in the context of a, you know, a developed market in the West in that very clear dif differentiation between audit and consulting and tax. If you go to some of their largest growth markets, you know, Indonesia, I would say is an interesting one, Malaysia, um, you know, possibly even China. I don't think that massive Chinese wall between audit and everything else goes on in terms of relationship with clients at all. I think actually, you know, you have a presence as an EY partner in some of those marketplaces you know lots and lots of people you're connected through you know through through your network and through the schools that you went to whatever with those people um I don't know if the clients appreciate the the the, the massive gap that needs to exist between them but I don't think necessarily it's such a very clear differentiation between um uh you know between a consulting partner and an audit partner and therefore that's that's interesting in terms of how does this separation look going forward Paul what do you think <laughs> I'm also puzzled about the capabilities that both parts need. Certainly the auditing, um, there's a whole um, voice for saying that they do need some of the some of the um, tax and, and so on in terms of tax and, and complications in you know very very sort of large structured companies. Um, so they'll have to recruit them again. Um, and they won't have the choice that they had in within their internal pool of resource. So I think it's uh, it throws a bit of a limitation on the on the auditing company that results from the, from the separation. I think the consultants would be. Yeah, I mean, I think the separation is going to be pretty messy, isn't it? Basically, what we're saying. Yes, I mean, let, let, and I think if if I were working for for, for EY now, I'd, I'd I'd also be a bit depressed if I was in the auditing part because they're, they're sort of projected as being you know bean counters, very dull. It's uh, it's all the things that are totally non aspirational. If you're looking at um, you know your your attractivity as a your as, a, as an employer, so if they have to start looking for you know whiz kids in tax and stuff like that, uh, to, and being proclaiming to be themselves you know bean counters, um, I don't think that's very skillful communication. But it's well, I think I think work. that's true. Although I I would say that they have 
been better. I certainly, Paul, Peter, David, when you when you and I were at PwC days, we, we you know, the ninety nine percent of the recruitment that took place at graduate level came through audit, right? Yes. And whether you were whether you were interested in that sort of approach or not, you know, you could make a decision three or four years down the track if you wanted to go to consulting practice. I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, I think they do recruit independently of each other because they've finally worked out that actually someone who's got the risk profile of an auditor is not necessarily the same person who should have a, the risk profile of a consultant. So I don't think the recruiting pool is necessarily the same. But I think you're right. Uh, that there is crossover, Paul, massive crossover. Can we talk a bit about the separation? Because that just seems to me, I mean, what a mother of all separations we're talking about here, right? I mean, they haven't thought about, brand, you know, I was just writing, writing a few things down you, you'd want to think about. Brand, locations in terms of offices, global clients, the technology, the governance, the regu- the fact that some of them are regulated entities. How the hell do you split that all up, basically? Um, the the support functions, who's going to do what in which area and how are you going to split those organisations up? That's probably quite easy to do at a small local office, but can you imagine the larger businesses around the world um, doing that? I mean, where do you start? And, and the number of approvals, I guess, in each oh, country yeah. they've got to have to give the extra, you know. So what happens if, you know, three large countries said, hooray, let's all separate, and then the smaller ones say, actually... Well, we they've had that. To ...separate and so on? They've already had that. I mean, China's basically stepped out of the deal. Uh, yes. So they're not doing it. Mm-hmm. But I don't see... So I could see there's a lot of work to do, but equally, I don't see it as necessarily... Um, bad i think it could be value generating so if you're working if you're thinking about an audit firm the back office systems its place how it organizes itself the hr team and what they're doing the it systems it uses uh the controls in place actually i can imagine they're fundamentally different in some areas from what a consulting team would need and so this gives the consulting team completely clean slate you know they can reimagine their legal entity structure all the way through to hr what it means to be people rethink their values you know the problem with big companies is they get stuck in a rut and say okay these are our values they haven't changed for 20 years this is what we do this is a great opportunity to rethink everything from bottom up uh, and a consulting team if anybody can do it surely a consulting team could as long as they don't choose monday as a brand name um, maybe they got a chance. Tuesday, possibly. Um, wh- what about, I, look, I get that, David. I do get that. That's, you're right. There's a, an opportunity to reimagine. But I suppose what, I'm, what I think is interesting about this is that the whole operating model of a, of a big four firm, which is this massive leverage that they're trying to drive through, I just don't know whether that exists in the world that they compete with, whether that's an Oliver Wyman or a McKinsey or a BCG, whether you have that massive leverage where you know every partner has to deploy 25 people below them at least to make themselves profitable does that actually work um guys anyone had any experience of those other firms that look like that or is that going to be the thing that's really going to be up for grabs what i'm saying is um in a big four firm for every partner you've got to have at least you know three or four layers of of people below them deployed to actually make them profitable basically Um, and that's the structure and shape of it that's been forever the way it is i don't see that level of leverage in the big strategic consulting houses there is some clearly there is some but it's not anywhere near the same degree as it is in the big four i think that's true but i think that one of the things that i've read about the consulting businesses of the big four is they tend to be these large multi-year projects so whether they're systems integration projects and it projects where one partner could oversee 10 other partners can oversee 200 people audit tends to be far more discreet and calculable and 
one of the things, and Bloomberg had a very interesting opinion piece on this uh, split, is they say the success of this spinoff is going to depend on making the auditors feel good. Um, because one of the arguments, and this is not me, but this is you know the, the Bloomberg columnist, basically one of the things that's driving the separation could be the fact that the auditors are the B team in these firms now. They, the auditors make less money, they have less, they can charge, they're more regulatory constrained, both in what they can do and how, what, how much they can charge. But they often see themselves as the root relationship. They're the deepest because they have a yeah. relationship around understanding the business that nobody else does. But they bring in these consultants who then, if, they, if they're successful, win, end up making far more than them. And the bitterness, I mean, one narrative is that What's causing the split is that the audit partners are saying, well, I founded the relationship. I've had this relationship for a decade. I brought in my consulting colleagues and now they're taking, making twice as much money. Yeah. And I, okay. I think, I, I mean, I, so the, the joy of being in a combined firm was that you got every audit, every major audit seven years long, right? So you've right. got cash flow for seven years, Correct. which is guaranteed. Whereas we all know in the consulting business, we've all been there. It all turns to zero every year, right? So, and I think you're right. It's interesting in terms of the, the longer term deals that these big firms have in terms of the consulting arrangements. I don't, I think they're not competing with the likes of, Wipro and some of the 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 uh, the you know the classic outsource providers they they do some of that right yeah but they are looking for the work you know they're looking for post merger integration projects they're looking for separation right. projects they're looking for quite high value right. uh, I, think, uh, I think the consulting side makes more money is what you're saying well yeah. it does but it's very much more you know uh, I suppose it comes to the question of whether we whether we should we want a listed business that looks like that or not because I don't know what you know what an analyst would look at that and say well you know you had 40 billion dollars of revenue last year but you know what's your future look like can you project because the CFO have any view about what their future earnings is going to look like and therefore how do we rate their shares but there are a lot of publicly listed I mean there's a lot of business, there's a lot of activity right now in professional services aggregations of consulting firms. So, you know, whether it's, uh, there's a US firm called Taneo or even, even uh, Stout, a lot of like accounting, there's a firm called FTI in the US yeah, that yeah, does yeah. regulatory. All those firms are private equity backed and split and they're basically just buy up other consulting firms. And I, and I would just, I agree. Just the scale is fundamentally different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is, you're right. This is much bigger. Yeah. Um, the other thing I read that's that may be relevant is that there is a short, it is very hard right now for accounting firms to recruit auditors. Yeah. Accounting graduates, even people who study accounting undergrad, are hesitant to go into audit as a career path, which I think was not the case. It used to be you majored in accounting so you could go into audit. And it's really hard for the big four and uh, and certainly the the smaller and mid-sized firms to recruit accounting graduates successfully because they have other options. They can go into finance or banking or so. Are we actually saying that the audit firm is not viable without the consulting business? Well, it will it will struggle. It will struggle. Uh, and and they're making it worse by them, you know, by by making it look so so bland and, and dull and uninteresting. It just makes the whole, you know, recruitment uh, more difficult. Now, if it's going to be, I think another big snag is that if this is going to be a very complicated uh, separation to implement, 
if I were a client of those, and uh, particularly the consultants, I'd be thinking, well, these guys are going to become very inward looking. There's a, there's a risk, you know, preoccupied about, well, you know, so the, the time they could spend um, in their spare time, which they still use, you know, to think about the client's um, issues and, and how they can solve them, creative solutions, they'd be thinking much more about themselves. Um, or, you know, it's maybe it's subjective, but frankly, if I'm a client and paying through the nose for, you know, very expensive for his kids, I'd like them to be totally focused on, on what I'm asking them to do and resolve and not about their, their own little lives. David? Yeah, a flip side opportunity, Paul. So I like your, I, I agree, actually, you know, day one of the separation, if you're on the EY, on the audit side, you're looking at your career opportunities. Day two, if they're smart about how the separation was done, it's a massive opportunity for all of them because what the audit business will do is start within the first year or two to regrow the consulting team. It will start with the high value stuff. It will start with the M&A work and then it will move into all other areas of consulting such that I would say 20 years from now, they will have a uh, be in a similar situation they are to the EY consulting team at the moment. And that's a massive opportunity for the auditors because they've got to resource those roles from somewhere. So you're saying this basically just this is just another hive off, David. In fact, what you're saying exactly, yeah, this go hive off and then regrow from organically, uh, starting for the first few years, maybe with a few small alternate acquisitions. Oh, such a cynical, man. yeah, it is pretty cynical. But I mean, David's point that basically the highest value creation thing for an audit firm to do is start harvesting, growing and harvesting consulting firms, and then spitting them off. It's not looking it's not at the facts. It's hard to well, but it's also looking at the facts of what of, of the history of this industry. It's hard to refute. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That, I mean, do that you know, well. I don't know if you saw in one of the articles they were talking about a piggy bank for future acquisitions, which makes me even more uh, turn even more in my grave. Because can you imagine on top of all this change, you're going to get re recruit a bunch of people? Um, one of the, one of the things I was going to ask you all, which I I am interested in, just from this separation process, is that. Um, I think the strength of these big four consulting businesses has been that they've been largely autonomous and able to run in the local and in the local countries by themselves within the guide rails and the branding re re you know, requirements and the QA that they have to do from a regulated regulated product perspective uh, around that. They've been able to basically go and, and, and do what they want to do and build their own capability. It feels like this has got a much more of a a global function, we're going to build this massive global consulting business perspective on it, which I think is a complete anathema to a lot of the local partners who have been uh, responsible for their own business for an awful long time. Forget about the fact that, you know, a partner in in uh, in New York is going to be paid significantly more than a partner in, in Jakarta and quite how you square that particular circle in this global listed company is going to be a very interesting challenge. It's not something you can just do at a sort of central HR level. There's a lot of other things about that. So are they starting in the wrong direction, I suppose? If you were sitting there as the new group CEO of, of whatever Tuesday it's going to be called, um, uh, would you, um, what would you be doing? I'm going to ask that. Paul, what do you think? What would you be doing first? What's your priority in terms of getting the separation right? Well, do you need to do the separation the same way in every country? Or do you just decide on the criteria? Well, up to you. If up they're to not you. going to separate in China, how does it already work with the branding? In some companies, it's two com in some countries, it's two companies. In another, it's. I'm asking you as a separation consultant, Paul. You're you're sitting alongside the group CEO of the, of of the new consulting business called Tuesday, and he's saying to you, "What do I do first? Right, I've got thirty thousand employees in eighty five different territories. 
so what I would what I would start with is is not impose one footprint that is valid across the world because the markets are different. So um, uh, you know that would be it would be remote controlled by the big markets because they have no choice than to get it right. Uh, but then they stand to lose a lot in the smaller markets because there's no fit for, for the market needs. So, um, I, I, you know, they will have to, I think, and, and it, it, if you look at the current system where they are divided by country, it, it's not without any, any reason. It's obviously a different fit, a different way of approaching business um, in, in each country. So they will have to, I think, agree on the, on the broad overarching principles of what they want to achieve as a, as a global company but the implementation is not rubber stamped i would not try certainly to grab a stamp it across uh, all markets it would, that would just uh, you know and and that will be an interesting battle because right? every consultant that you employ to do this consulting merger will be saying to you you must have global branding all that stuff right you must have this and this and this is all part of our connected piece abby what about you you're sitting alongside the group ceo of the new consulting business he's asking you what's your priority what's my priority in the separation process so i'll tell you and this is probably reflective of my biases in life compensation <laughs> <laughs> Pay, pay to because the one the one thing I would think would cause a spiral would be a, a mass departures, right? And so first thing you want to do is stabilize the ship, and I think Paul referred to this. And one way you stabilize the ship is you tie people up with long term compensation or massive payouts if they stick out for three years and hit, hit certain milestones. And I think once you know what team you have left in place and you know that they're you know, that they're basically, they have golden golden handcuffs. Then I think you have a little bit of breathing room to figure out exactly the details of which market governs what and organizational structure and things like that. But I think that if you don't get, if you have mass departures and people leave in, in selected markets, let's imagine you use Jakarta, let's imagine the Jakarta partners aren't happy with this and they all disappear. Then all of a sudden, this sort of, I think that this causes a spiral that could have greater impact, right? Because then people feel there's a loss of confidence. Clients feel there's a loss of confidence. They, the people they pick up the phone and call aren't there. So I would think that the first thing to do is to sort of tie everything together financially, at least for a couple of years until you go market by market and develop specific strategies and things like that. So I, I would think that the first thing is make sure everybody... And, I, uh, to be I, fair, to be fair, they have got that structure in their mind. As far as I know, they are doing that. I suppose my challenge to oh, you would be: What's the next thing? They, they're yeah. already doing that. They're already doing that. Right. I, I, my challenge to you is that retention scheme does not go below partner level. And whilst I know partners think that they are God's gift, the value probably sits below that level. As to whether, so are you saying we need to right. extend it beyond? I, I have. So I've read that. You know, I've read big numbers that the partners are getting. I wasn't aware that the junior staff. I don't know if they are. That's a good question. Because, good question. So years ago, decades ago now, I was part of an acquisition of a company called AT Kearney by EDS, which was a big technology provider. Ross Perot started that, I think at one point was owned by GM. And I remember basically they had called people into the room and gave them a number. And I was yeah. pretty junior, so it did go below partner. And I would think it would be folly for them not to, to do think that. about who's really creating value. I yeah. Yeah, it's the people have done dumber things, but I would suspect that, you know, somebody's thinking about who gets who should stay and who they want to keep and how they compensate them. to keep. It's but, interesting because if, if the audit sector's got difficulties in recruiting people, 
if you create enough enough resentment because the people who are doing all the sweaty job you know don't get the don't get any of the of the of the spoils um they would be you know probably very open to saying well if that's the way i'll go and switch to pwc or whoever you know that's that. right that's yeah. right. I mean, I, but I wonder whether the converse is true, Paul. Maybe one of the rationales, let's just, I'll be Penglossian about it or whatever. Maybe the rationale for doing this, let's imagine there's like a genius organizing all this. One rationale would be that this separation creates enough wealth for the audit side that they can spread wealth around even below the partner level and create some, this thing releases enough capital that they sort of, they can make millionaires out of mid-level audit guys. And well, it's good, it's good, isn't it? I mean, because in some ways, the, the the technology change that's taking place in audit is actually taking away the need for people to uh, check and 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 uh, balance so much as they do before. David Boy, what about you? What would you say to the group CEO? What would you be focusing so, on? So, I'd be thinking quite practically. Um, if I think back about 12 months ago, I was brought in to help with the recovery of some distressed integrations, 160 different businesses going down to six. Uh, this was just across EMEA, but there's a whole kind of global transformation program. And it may or may not have been run by a group of uh, EY consulting uh, across the whole team. So the, the, the challenge is always with those kind of global groups is they become too divorced from the practical realities and challenges in each market. You know, the, what you're dealing with in Algeria um, or, or sub-Saharan Africa versus the reality in the US is just fundamentally different. And you need that local knowledge and understanding to make progress. So I would be divorcing it down to the furthest level possible in each each organization and then providing support and guidance and oversight kind of centrally. Uh, but really thinking about that skilled resource that understood the business that could make um, informed decisions. So are you suggesting, in effect, they should employ a bunch of consultants to help them do their, their separation process? Yes, I'm just questioning whether or not they should look internally or not. Well, that's a good question, isn't it, basically? Um, very good question. Um, okay, cool. Um, what else do we want to finish with on this? Because we've got about a minute to wrap up. Um, let me start. What would I want to finish with? Um, I think uh, I think it's a big, brave move. I think the possibility of uh, there being lots and lots of little mini splits that make this untenable going forward are significant. I think valuation is going to be a hell of a challenge uh, in, the, in the years to come. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, never, never compensation that people are waiting for might actually end up being a bit of a disaster for them. And I think most informally, and Paul, you've pointed to this already, from a client and from an employee perspective, I think this level of change, even in organizations that perhaps supposedly are quite familiar with it, is going to make their experience pretty miserable. So I think it's going to be pretty tough, I would say. Abby, what's your conclusion on this? I, I actually think that if you're the competitors... This is an opportunity to take advantage of the disruption that uh, is going to happen here. Because, you know, based on everything, you know, you all have said, there is no clean, easy way to make this work. And so if you are a competitor, whether you've already done some split and you're pure consulting or pure audit, this becomes a reason to call clients, the E&Y clients. And, and so I think figuring out how to stall or hold off or manage the uh, disruption to the client base is something that 
I would think every partner, whether on the consulting or audit side, must be thinking about, and uh, every client must be thinking about what this does to the quality of their services. And competitors are thinking about how to sharpen the saw to sort of, or spear to attack this. And uh, I'm curious to see what happens. So it's a very, it's going to be a, a case study for something, either done well or poorly. David, what do you think? Uh, I can't say anything smarter than Abe there. I, I think the whole EY business, both sides, comes into play. Um, and that's the big game, whether you're in the team or you're competing with them. Paul? Yeah, <clears throat> to add on to that, I think it's particularly in, in, in medium and smaller markets in terms of importance for, for EY, um, because this is very thought. They're obviously going to think everything through and concentrate all their energy on, on the key markets. Uh, but the complete inadequacy might might happen in the, in the other markets uh, where there's some good um, you know market share to be gained for the others. So yes, you've got to you know kill the goose whilst it's already agonising basically. <laughs> and with that analogy, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you all three of you. Uh, it's been really good fun talking about this. Uh, as ever, please leave your comments and thoughts on this, and indeed any subjects that you want us to explore and blether on about uh, next time. Thanks all.